Hey everybody, welcome to the Wicked Ones podcast. This is Tara. And this is Jen. Yeah, welcome back. So what's what's going on? Same old, same old. It's just I... like Groundhog's Day all over again. We Every don't, day. We haven't had a lot going on this past week, which I guess is somewhat of a good thing. Yeah, you know, nothing, nothing major, nothing crazy, nothing to really complain about. So that's, that's a positive. Um, I did, I did notice this is, I, I'm very excited about this. So in my quest, in our quest to do better with Instagram and figure out what, what we're doing on there, I've been noticing a lot more, um, really great stories coming out now about these killers going down years later because of DNA and genealogy, which makes me really happy. Yeah, I mean, all of those uh, genealogy kits that are being gifted these holidays is probably, I'm hoping, make a big impact. I hope so. So get those for your loved ones. Get your DNA in there. I'm sorry if Grandpa Joe's going down, but Grandpa Joe needs to go down if that's the case. Yeah. Don't be afraid. Get it in there. <laughs> get it in there. These people need to pay for their crimes. They they need to know that they did not get away with it. So so that makes me happy to see because that's something that we we talk about all the time that we have a passion for for sure. And then also I noticed we talk about the zodiac and I told you it was one of the first cases that really got me interested in true crime and they cracked a cipher this week which I thought was really cool. Yeah. That's surprising. I I mean I didn't even Yeah. I mean it doesn't say, you know, hey my name is blank and I did xyz i mean too bad that it doesn't it's just kind of a rambling but it's still really cool that they cracked it so i'm not going to go into what it actually says you can look that up for yourself it's it's a long rambling um you know from the zodiac but it's just cool that they cracked it they've been working on it for a really long time so it's exciting to know that no one has given up yes yes knowing that all these cold cases and all of these things that are going on are you know they're still digging into them which is really cool but i'm excited to hear what you have for me this week So this one doesn't have anything to do with DNA, surprising. Uh, Today I'm going to tell you about the Italian Hall disaster. And um, I'm going to apologize in advance because (laughs) when I looked at my notes, I realized I am now giving you a history lesson and you're going to learn more than you ever thought you needed to know about Michigan's uh, copper country. (laughs) but you know what I'm excited about that because it's a little different than some of the stories that we normally do and I think that people that are into true crime are also into learning about some of these crazy things that happened in our history yeah so it's not you know and it's somewhat of crime but not not it's not the typical story that I would tell so I felt like you needed a little bit of a history about how and why Mm -hmm. the disaster happened so the Italian Hall disaster occurred on December 24th 1913 during a strike in the Michigan's Copper Country. And this strike lasted from the summer of 1913 to the spring of 1914. So although it's never been quite proven, it's believed that this mass casualty tragedy was really in retaliation to the labor dispute that was going Mm -hmm. on in the copper mines at Uh, the time. Okay. So that's where it kind of gets the crime comes from. Oh, okay. Uh, it occurred in Red Jacket, Michigan, and today that area is known as Calumet. Ah, yes. And like I said, this happened during a time when uh, workers who stood up for their rights and wanted fair treatment could be beaten, you know, fired, or from what I tell you today, even worse. Uh, during this tragedy, at least 73 people 
died and <sighs> 59 of them were children. So sad. And yeah, it's, it really is sad. So a little bit about uh, Michigan's copper country. The area I'm talking about today is in the upper peninsula of Michigan, specifically in the Keweenaw region. Okay. I got that right. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, copper was already known there and it was discovered by the settlers in the mid 1800s. Investors began a plan once they found this out and a new copper town was developed in that area and that was Red Jacket. And Red Jacket, they took from a name of a famous Native American that was in that area. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, that's a whole nother story. Right. Um, so this group of investors was called the Calumet Mining Company. And they developed in Red Jacket. And then other investors came to open another private mine. Um, they were called Helka. Um, oh, I'm sorry, Hecla. And in 1871, the two companies decided that they were going to merge. So they became Calumet and Hecla. C&H. Okay. Miners from all over the world came to work for this company. They, um, British, Canadians, Italians, Austrians, Finns, and Croatians, they all came. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, that was a big, it was big business and that's where. Ran mostly by immigrant labor workers. Um, So C&H, they were really good at what they did. So, and from 1868 into 1886, they were the leading copper producers in the United States. Oh, wow. And, you know, when you think of copper, I always think of, like, Missouri. I always think of down south a little bit more. Yeah. But, so that's interesting. And then from 1869 to 1876, they were the leading copper producer in the world. Wow. So they were big time. Um, from 1871... To 1880, they turned out more than half of the copper produced in the United States, and um, they had the uh, deepest vertical mine shaft of 4,900 feet. And that's the deepest in the world. Could just you imagine the, no, working in that? No, just the thought, like when I picture those people getting in those elevators and, you know, doom, 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 down into this like hole in the ground, it just I have a ton of pictures. Me. It's it's crazy. crazy. These cars would be filled with like 40 men and going down. I well, and then you hear all these stories too with miners who get trapped and then that's it. I mean, you're you never go into work for the day, but don't know if I'm gonna make it home for dinner. I mean, scary. Yeah, I'm gonna talk a little bit about the dangers of it. Okay, I so I had no idea copper mining was such a serious business and what it all entailed. I don't know anything about it. I was completely it. No. ignorant to the whole thing. So copper being found in very remote areas obviously brings its challenges mm-hmm. because yeah. how do you have your workers there? So these private mining companies would essentially create entire towns. Oh, wow. Around the mine. I mean, I guess you would have to. That makes sense. Uh, and so they would have homes, you know, schools, hospitals, stores, but all of these were owned by the mining company. Mm-hmm. CNH was, they prided themselves on being a little bit more top notch as far as taking care of their employees mm-hmm. as opposed to other mining companies. So in 1868, they built the first industrial hospital on their property. Uh, in 1877, they actually started an employee aid fund to aid their ill and injured employees, which oh. was um, their employees could participate voluntarily and then each participating worker would contribute 50 cents a week 
and CNH actually matched them. Oh, I mean, that's probably, that was probably unheard of until This then. is in... Yeah, yeah. 1877? So it sounds like they were really trying to do good by their people. It seems like they are. Yeah. They, um... They're credited as one of the first American companies to set up an employee health benefit fund and to actually manage and contribute to match their employees. Yeah. Um, So by 1908 in this area, the company had even provided a staff of physicians and its hospital for employees and their family. They had worker clubhouses with bowling alleys. They had employee libraries and reading material in 20 languages, which we know is really important because... Mm -hmm. There is immigration from so many different areas. Oh, There's yeah. so many different languages. So they really sounds like they really tried to make yeah. it a nice place, a to nice live. area. Yeah. And then the company also supplied consumer goods to their employees. So it would provide like coal, firewood, electricity, all of these things at wholesale prices. Oh, okay, yeah. It sounds great, doesn't it? It sounds great, but I have a feeling. It's definitely it's a double-edged sword. Right? So, well, when one company owns all of that and has that much control over the people in their lives, it can get dicey. It, yeah, and it does. Mm-hmm. So CNH, like a lot of the other mining companies in Copper Country, they were they were accused of paternalism, which is was most evident in the housing. Mm-hmm. So they built hundreds of company homes and they provided them to married couples and families. Mm-hmm. And they gave it a very low rent, so there was no profit for the company. It was just housing, which, you know, seems like a plus. Uh, They also allowed employees to build houses on their property. Okay. But they often did these with shady contracts that the people, their employees, couldn't even read. So they didn't know what they were signing, and but under the terms in which the company allowed them to use the land, they could force them to vacate their houses at any time. Okay. Okay. So it really just, like, your relationship with the company really depended depended on your, I mean, whether your you had a roof over your head or not. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you had to kind of watch your P's and Q's, and you had to... And there was even even favorism that was going on. I guess peripheral treatment on the houses and Mm -hmm. what property you would get, which then would cause issues among the coworkers. So they even said there were if there was issues at work, it could result in like restrictions or privileges of your personal time. Like maybe you weren't allowed in the clubhouse, or you didn't get as much firewood. There was just there were just ways to be punished that. They they kept you under the under your under their thumb. Right. Kind of so if it was good, if it was good, it was good. But if it was bad, it was real bad. And if you got fired, then you you were evicted. You and your family were evicted. So that home could be used for the next miner taking your place. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, okay. This so doesn't sound so great. It depends on what you which way you look at it. Right? I mean, I'm sure for some people it was, but. In other aspects, it's kind of like, well, you're kind of signing your life away to these people and hoping hoping it all goes well and you don't ever have any disputes. Have any issues. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, and mining itself, as we just said, is not the safest job. They're, they're averaged one fatality and 10 serious injuries a week. Wow, that many? I mean, I guess I shouldn't be surprised. But. Yeah, and I suppose, it, I suppose it probably depends on the size of mm-hmm. the area, but in this area, that's what they were saying. That's a lot. That is a lot. 
Um, so is this where they came up with the zero in <laughs> with the little calendar, you know, where you have like zero, what, what does it say? You know, incidents or whatever for the oh, week. Oh, yeah, for OSHA, right? I yeah, actually yeah. wrote on here, OSHA would be very unhappy. Yeah, it'd be like, where's the calendar, people? We need to yes, keep an yes. eye on this. We haven't yeah. had an incident in three months. Yeah, we have one of those calendars. Yeah. Whenever <laughs> like it's exchanged back, everyone's like, oh. <laughs> Shit. Um, so, obviously, it's a, it's a dangerous, dangerous job. They're deep underground with no electricity. They use candles and lamps. Uh, they're down there for 10 to 12 hours a day for six to seven days a week. The pay was terribly low. Uh, it was mostly physical labor. And then I read one of, one of like kind of the lowest positions, I guess, were trammers. And what the trammers did is they would actually push the buckets of copper on a rail. A rail. So, right, the, the drillers were the people who were down there. And mm-hmm. they were kind of at the top of the hierarchy, right? Because they were considered like a skilled worker. Okay. But the trammers were kind of like the grunt work. So they would fill the copper into the buckets and push it along this almost like a railroad Mm -hmm. um and then so it says that your those trammers were paid by pound of copper that they would move a day okay except there's no scale so how did they determine apparently your manager it was at their their version of the pound that day oh gosh so in theory, it sounds good, but then again, when it comes down to it, it really just didn't work out that way. No. And like I talked about, it was all immigrants, right? So there's huge language barriers. Uh, the job assignments were made by ethnicities, and they were anything but equal. So depending on your your manager and, and what, maybe if they didn't like as they didn't like Finns or if they didn't like yeah. Italians, yeah. it could really affect where your job mm-hmm. was and yeah. whether you could move up or not your kids weren't getting along at school with my kids and your wife had an incident with mine so yeah. it looks like you maybe moved like a pound and a half today sucks to be you yeah that yeah That's you, awful. you got it yeah. exactly and they were saying on average there is five to six languages in a mine wow that's just that's so i mean crazy. can you imagine no. that language barrier and no. trying to work efficiently that's insane Mm-mm. Well, no wonder there were so many injuries. I mean, people couldn't even warn other people if there was a problem. No. They didn't know what they were seeing. And that, I mean, when we get people at the hospital all the time, when we, obviously we have interpreters now, but I uh, always, I can't imagine the level of fear that you have when you're in a bad situation or if you're sick or you're mm-hmm. scared and not being able to communicate. Yeah. It's every, I just can't. Mm-mm. ever wrap my head around that it's no. gotta be so scary no um so obviously these working conditions brought the interest of the union mm-hmm. they needed to protect themselves and in 1909 the western federation of miners the wfm established their presence in calumet so they were already big um in montana okay but they were they were working their way uh, and then in between 1911 and 1912, there was an increase in the demand of copper just due to overall industrialization, mm-hmm. use of electricity, automobiles, sure. like all those things. But the increase in demand did not equal an increase in pay. So they decided, management decided to have some different thoughts about the process. And they looked for more of a scientific approach to mining and a reduction in bodies. Okay. 
Which we all know we've been there. We see that with technology. Every it's time something jobs. improves, it takes jobs away and less people are needed and more button pushers come into play. Yeah. So yeah. they this was the development of the one-man drill. And like I said, but this didn't mean twice the work. So at first the miners were a little bit of, a, they're kind of excited because then they thought more production, but that was not the case. They were going to cut the, the workforce in half. And obviously, then there was concern because there was you're not you're no longer working in pairs. Okay. So the you so always had nobody a, there you always had you. a buddy. So if yeah. you had a one man drill and something were to happen, you had an emergency and you're down there. You're just you're SOL. Yeah. Uh, and like I said, the drill operators were seen as skilled laborers, so they were higher on the ladder when they were compared to other mining jobs, and they were more of an equivalent to management. So they were seen kind of running in the same circle. And they often would see eye to eye on other labor disputes. Mm-hmm. They would kind of smooth things out, kind of work as like the middleman. But once the one-man drill was introduced and they felt their their job and their safety was in jeopardy, there was a huge shift there as mm-hmm. well. So with all of those things, tensions were really rising. I can, I can imagine, yeah. Um. So by July of 1913, the Western Federation of Miners called for a general strike against mines in Michigan's copper country. By July 14th, 1913, they sent out an official letter to the Michigan mine managers, including Calumet and so CNH. Mm-hmm. And they, at that time, employed approximately 2,100 people. So the union was asking for an eight-hour day a minimum wage of $3 a day. So that's up from 3 to 350 is what they wanted and right now they were getting between $1.50 and 250. Okay. Um they wanted an end to the use of the one man drill. And they also wanted the companies to recognize the union as their representative. I don't feel that any of those demands are too out of line with No, they sound You're so crazy and irrational. Yeah, they sound um pretty fair. So one of the managers uh, that got this was manager of CNH, James McNaughton. He's probably not the most stand-up guy from everything that I read. So he had actually worked for CNH from the age of 11. Okay. And then later attended University of Michigan and came back and became management. He was, he was known as kind of an embellisher often insulted people. He was known for his anti-union stance. And under his management, there was like an unwritten policy of not hiring miners, not hiring miners with any union history. So if you had any type of association, you weren't good with him. Okay. He also hired spies to spy on his employees. Sounds like a stand-up guy. And he was, and he was very prejudiced against certain ethnicities. That's awful. That's not someone that you want managing your company. No. Um, so, like I said before, CNH, they prided themselves on being a little bit, uh, doing a little bit more than the average mining company in the area for their employees. So, although they had high wages by copper country standards, so mm-hmm. technically in that area, they were getting paid decently compared to other surrounding mining companies. Okay. So, their dollar, whatever, was actually considered... Yeah, they were actually okay. they were actually making a little bit more than the other companies. It's in the hard area. to imagine because back then, I mean, obviously wages are so different. So that yeah. just sounds now in twenty twenty that just sounds like meager pay for the oh, it sounds, the high demand and the and this is 
per you day. Know? Yeah. And the, I mean, danger that these guys were. But then they also, so it kind of, I don't know, this is probably a poor example, but it kind of reminds me of the military. Because when you live on base, you don't pay mm-hmm. for housing or yeah. you pay a small amount. So you don't make so much, but you don't have to worry about your housing. And then you get your groceries at a wholesale price yeah. Yeah. at the commissary. Very similar. So it's a very, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a good analogy, but when I, that's what it reminded me of. Um, so they re- their response to the letter was basically, you're already getting a little bit more money than the surrounding you know areas or the mm-hmm. surrounding companies. Um, and that we were already saying that we are going to reduce your day. Like we already said we were going to reduce your day, but they were, they weren't going to budge on the one man, the Mm -hmm. one man drill. And then they also said, basically stop comparing your wages to Montana because the union was using that as an example, obviously as a Midwest representative. Mm -hmm. And they were saying that area of Montana has a higher standard of living and that's why people make a little bit more there. So we can't pay you the same, which makes sense because people in California Mm -hmm. don't make the same as you do in Ohio. No, no, you're right. So, I mean... I can see that point of view. Yeah, I totally. So overall, though, the mine workers were divided. Not all of them were in favor of the strike because they were scared. Oh, this is I'm their sure. livelihood, yeah. and they weren't willing to challenge the big mining companies. But still, with that being said, on July 23rd, 1913, the strike officially began. All of CNH's mines were shut down during the strike due to the miners refusing to work and also by physically blocking the mines, not allowing work to happen. Oh. So if the strikers, if you still wanted to work, you weren't going to work. You still couldn't, no. Mm-mm. Um, now the miners, the mine owners were scared. They thought that the strikers were to be violent. So they immediately went to Michigan's governor, Woodbridge Ferris, and asked for help. So he called in the National Guard immediately. They arrived the next day by 10 a.m. Wow, that's fast. We talk about the National Guard coming for, like, months. I know, we're like, where are they? What's happening? Right. And there's really, uh... There's conflicting stories about what actually happened and the level of violence that went on. It kind of really mm-hmm. depends on where. Which you, side you were on, where you stood, what you, yeah. Yeah. So mine operators and the National Guard claimed that the strikers were terrorizing the town and described lawlessness and violence. But when uh, looked at everything, there was only one fatality during the time that the National Guard was present in that area. Hmm. And. That death was of a member of the National Guard, and his death was from getting kicked by a horse. Okay, so that doesn't really have anything it to do with It doesn't, even though on. it's documented, yeah. it didn't have anything to do with what was hmm. going on in that area. So, obviously, the mind... I wonder if he died of COVID, too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm for sure, yeah. for sure. Um, so, the mine, the mine management, you know, the mine companies weren't interested in negotiations. At this time, mining was great, so they had a surplus of cash and copper. Mm-hmm. They weren't in dire need to negotiate or to get things going, but they still wanted to move forward a little bit. So they began to import foreign workers. Okay. So they were going to other areas of the of the country and getting workers who were unaware of what was happening. Okay. So they had no idea a strike was going on. Not cool. No, no. So they would put these 
immigrant workers on trains to Michigan. And then the expense of their ticket was deducted from their first week's wages. Oh, okay. Come but work with were they us. able to get into work at this point? So they, they were able to work. But as I read, and I don't know how true it is, but it says I read when they um arrived that they were kept there at gunpoint and like kind of treated like prisoners or slaves. Wow. Like they were kind of kept in camps. I don't I don't know how true that is because and I'll tell you a little bit more. So Meanwhile, there's this group developing in response to the WFM, right? So there's this union. Yeah. Obviously, a lot of businessmen and those investors are not happy with the union because they can't control. I mean, that's just common sense, right? right? They can't control what's happening. So they formed this group called the Citizens Alliance. And it was mostly made up of businessmen, but it was funded by the mine owners. So we can see where this is going. Yeah, yeah, you can. They were paying the local newspaper to print positive reports concerning CNH. So, like I said, it's crazy. We talk about how... So they started fake news. They started... Right. So we were talking about how we used to think how journalism was real. But apparently, Mm -hmm. I mean, this is 1913 and Mm -hmm. it's already happening. Already happening. They're already... You can already slip in through the door and pay pay the the man in the back and get a good get, story. Yes, it's it's insane. So CNH also they hired James Woodell, which he was in charge of a private security company and a strike breaker force. So he mm-hmm. had like this kind of like a company of thugs, I guess you could say. Okay. And they were armed, and they protected the replacement workers like you said so they were able to work so they were able to work at this point because now they had these strike breakers and these thugs that were harassing and intimidating the strikers so i can't imagine what it would be like to work in a mine where you have it's got to be a high stress situation Uh, and then you mm -hmm. have strikers that don't want you to work and these thugs with guns protecting you so right. you can work and you have no idea what you got yourself into gotcha. because this was presented as a great opportunity mm-hmm. but you still have to pay for your train ticket yeah i know that's crazy well because it's like on one side they're like welcome and you're at gunpoint and here we go and it looks really awful and then on the other side they're like no no they were being protected we were making sure they could get to the mine so you're like which which, which what happened you, it's it's the yeah it's, it just doesn't sound good no, no no and even so some of these thugs that were hired this you know the strike breakers and such were even deputized by the local sheriff oh boy okay scary uh and then i just said you get a shield and you get a shield and you know <laughs> it's you can't be giving these people you can't uh that type of authority so one there's a bunch of examples of both parties being violent Mm -hmm. but most of it is very it's not organized violence from what I under from what I could find so there would just be like one or two people that would act out individually but they were associated with one or the other I gotcha but you're gonna have that no matter what you're talking about exactly so it's not like they were like planning these things you just have someone who went rogue and made a bad decision and it starts Mm -hmm. It starts a whole, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I can see it. You know how it goes. Mm -hmm. So on August 14th, there was two striking miners that were killed by two strike breakers. Okay. Okay. So I found a couple different accounts of what actually happened. All very tragic. Mm. But there's some basic details. So 
two different miners, so not the ones that were killed, but two different ones took a shortcut over some mine property while walking to their boarding house. So they had left because at this time they were still getting a small amount of money from the WFM. Okay. They were giving them a little bit of food and a little bit of money for survival. So they had gone to get their their supposed money for the day, which they didn't even get because they were running out of money. Came walking back, took a shortcut, shortcut over the mine property. So strike breakers who happened to be Waddell, the guy who has the... I, not Secret Service, but, you know, the thug manager. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, he had a couple men there, and he they were yelling warnings to the miners, like, you can't walk here, mm-hmm. get off the property, because now everything's just super aggressive and yeah. mm-hmm. any reason to start a fight. Well, they didn't understand. It was a different language. So they don't, they don't even know what these people are yelling at them. They just keep going. They went home. So then the strike breakers are, you know, they were unhappy and felt disrespected. So they actually go to the home, the boarding house where they live, to threaten them. Because that's what you do when you're a thug. So somehow things happened. Bullets were shot into the house. And two other people who just happened to be their roommates were killed. Yeah. And then there was also a baby that was injured in this because there was families still living there as well because they had to prove a point and come start a fight and yes yes and so like i said there's there's a couple different accounts exactly on what happened when they got to the house Mm -hmm. and how they entered the home and but in the end but in the end it all that was the gist of it and to make even worse so they had to get five different interpreters to gather statements and nothing ever came of it well, hell no. They couldn't sort they anything out. They covered it all out. up. It was all just yeah. swept under the rug. It was, yeah. nothing ever happened. But I'm not surprised. No, but it's, it's, it's not surprised, but it's still, I mean, this is 1913, and these things are happening. Mm-hmm. So when we hear of these yeah. things happening today, I always think, what happened to our world? Why is there so much corruption yeah. when, maybe it's always been going on. I don't know, but... So now it's um, October, and with the exception of CNH, the other mine companies start evicting striking striking miners from their homes. Okay, you're not gonna work here. You can't stay here. Yeah, I guess a court order was made that prevented them from doing such things. So So the people who were kicked out didn't leave. I don't. I think they did have to leave, but eventually. They stopped it from continuing. Okay. That's okay. what it sounds like. So now winter is here and the striking miners are in dis- dis- despair. I mean, they mm-hmm. haven't worked in five months. Yeah. They're living on donated food and financial assistance from the w- WFM, but it's running out. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. It's, it's looking very grim for them. So Annie Klemnick of the WFM, she decides that she's going to host a Christmas party for the children of the striking miners because she really just wants to cheer mm-hmm. people up. Yeah. Now listen to this. This is what, and I want to read this to my kids. So the donations, she collected donations and hoped that she could get something small for each of the children. So each child would receive one of, not all of them, either a hat, mittens, a piece of candy, or a piece of fruit. Oh. Take that, children. And your Xbox Five. I don't know what is it that's out there right now. PlayStation PlayStation Five, Xbox. So each one, you would get one of those. You would either get a hat Mm -hmm. or mittens. Like you're not getting a goodie bag. Yeah. 
So she organizes this party. So on the afternoon of Christmas Eve, 1913, there is between 500 and 700 people at this local meeting space known as the Italian Hall. Mm -hmm. So the party was being held on the upper floor of the two-story building with many of the adults visiting the saloon on the lower level. But they were saying that more than half of this number of people was children because okay. it's for families. It well, was mostly yeah. for the kids. And it was for the kids. Yeah. It was for the kids, which just takes it to a whole nother yeah, it does. It despicable does. level. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a steep stairway that was the only way to get to the second floor. Okay. You picture like those old buildings, right? Yep. So there, there's this it now. steep, narrow stairway to get upstairs. And there's a poorly marked fire escape on one side of the building and ladders down the back of the building. But you could only reach it if you climbed out a window. Okay. So it wasn't like a door to this area or whatever. You had to climb out a window. And At some point during the party, a stranger entered the building and yelled, fire. <sighs> I know. And I know, I know of this story. And I just... It's tragic. It's awful. Yeah. It's, it's really... Um, it's really bad. So... There's no sign of fire or smoke. So Annie, and she says, like, just relax. Yeah. There's yeah. nothing going on here. Don't panic. But within seconds, the kids start rushing for the doorway. There's shrieks of fire. You know, the word spreads. Yeah. Well, they're scared. I mean, it takes o- it takes over, right? Your whole body. You're fire? <gasps> you're terrified. You're, you're like, I'm just going to go. Me I'm out. just going to go. Well, or even if you just hear it and you're like, oh, I'm just going to start making my way to the entrance. And then you see all these people start going to the entrance and then people start running. So uh-huh. and they feel like they're really running from a fire. So some people were able to escape down the stairway, but... Eventually, someone fell, and when that person fell, then others began to trip over on top of them, and people still, you know, the stairway became blocked, but people were still pushing to get out and Mm -hmm. escape, so the children that were underneath were essentially being suffocated, and bodies were on top of bodies, and no one could move or no, breathe. No, no, no. And they said in less than a minute, there was a pile of bodies that was several feet high. Oh so gosh. you have to remember, this is, a, it's a very narrow stairway going mm-hmm. down. Mm-hmm. So there's stacks of bodies nobody at the bottom get, of the nobody stairs. Nobody can even get up. Nobody, nobody can even open the door yeah. because you can't get to you the door can't. because of the bodies that are down there that it's. I just, the pictures are unreal. <sighs> I didn't see any pictures. I don't know that I want to. No, I, so it only takes but a couple minutes for the fire department to show up because they're mm-hmm. only right across the street, but they have to come in from the top. Uh, so they had to come in through the windows up So top, they had right? to use ladders to come mm-hmm. in through the windows at the top and start taking bodies from the top to the and bottom. And pulling them back. Pulling them up the stairs. And putting them on the tables that were once for the festive for holiday the- celebration. Yeah. I can't even imagine. No. So it took them hours to get these <sighs> bodies out. And like I said, the children were laid on the tables. Some did survive, but most were crushed and buried alive. And essentially, they just suffocated. And there is, so I said 59 <sighs> children it varies a little bit. Some reports say 62 children, but mm-hmm. overall it's 
73 people in total. I just imagine these poor parents trying to get through that door to figure out where their child their children are and if they can help them. I there's there they couldn't do anything but sit back and know that no. know what was happening and they couldn't do no, it. It was a stampede going downstairs. Yeah. I mean, we talk about this right when we oh used to go to concerts and actually hang out yeah. with other people. We we yeah. we would talk about this, especially with. Just anything, like a shooter or a bomb threat or a, anything. It's like, right? You always well, tell there me. Was, well, in Chicago, at Lala, there was, or in Vegas, mm-hmm. or. Yes. It turns into mass chaos. It you does. just, your natural instinct kicks in and you, like I said, they were, these people were stepping on children that were laying on the ground, but you're falling, you're also, for, and for them, they're falling down the stairs. People are yeah. shoving you down the stairs. Yeah. And if there's more people on top of you coming down the stairs, you can't, like I said, they couldn't even get the door open. They were trapped. They couldn't, they couldn't move. I mean, in, in other venues, we see people that trample other people. And that's usually the case of how they didn't make it because people were stepping on top of them to get to the exit, which is just awful and horrific in itself. But I can't even imagine this whole down the stairs scenario. There's a little bit... I'll talk about this part at the at the end a little bit more because I'm not. I'll just talk about it now. There's there was a rumor saying that the stairs opened, the doors at the bottom of the stairs opened inward, and that's why they couldn't get out. Okay. Because everybody is piled in front of the doors, yeah. and, you, and couldn't, you couldn't open it. You couldn't open it. This proven not true. There are rumors that there was people on the other side. Like holding the doors, holding the shut. doors, not letting them out, um, or that maybe they were blockaded for a short amount of time, and then all that happened, and they they took off. But there's no proof of that. And you have but to the wonder doors did open if there hour. were people barricading it when the firemen showed up. Wouldn't they have tried to get to that door first? Do you know what I'm saying? Right, right. Like they would have tried to go there, open the door, and then pull the people out. You couldn't pull them out, Tara. Couldn't... When you see the pictures, you. Oh, yeah, you. Oh God! They okay. opened the doors. You, you. So they, they did, but they were just. They were literally stacked on top of like sandwich slices, like layered oh Jenga pieces. They had to go from the they top. Had to go from the to top. start pulling okay. people off, because oh. you couldn't pull them out. I mean, it was oh. a horrific, horrific sight. Yeah. So, I obviously. They say that a witness, several witnesses say they saw a man wearing a dark coat. I'm sure you probably read this if you mm-hmm. know anything about the case. Because I, I feel like this is one of the only things that everybody knows. Um, there's a, a man wearing a dark coat with his hat pulled down to hide his face. He, no one recognized him as a minor. And they remember seeing a pin on his coat, which bore red letters reading Citizens Alliance supposedly after motioning and urging people for their attention, he shouted fire and then ran down the stairs and into the street. Now, Waddell's strike breaker, Edward Manley, was seen in the stairwell after the shout of fire. So this is one of his thugs. Right, right. They say he had gone in the stairwell to help people, but he was never questioned and disappeared from the area. And he wasn't trapped. And he wasn't trapped. He got out. But some people did get out. They said mm-hmm. several dozen people got out first before, before the someone had fallen and 
the stampede started and then mm-hmm. I just couldn't stop it. So was it him? Was it, I, it seems very likely that this was an attack on the strikers mm-hmm. and their families. Mm-hmm. It's hard it sure to does. believe it's hard. Yeah. that it's I not. Agree. I agree. And obviously, like we talked about, the front page news read differently depending on who they supported, the striking miners or mine management. So Moyer is the head of the WFM, and he did not say anything. So he did not say Citizens Alliance did it, blah, blah, blah. He kind of kept his mouth shut, but he started sending telegrams across the country asking for an investigation into the tragedy. Oh, okay. He says, this is suspicious, and Mm -hmm. this isn't right. We need help. But that didn't get him very far. So the local authorities and mine management confronted Moyer. They told him to stop selling the, sending the telegrams and that he needs to issue a statement absolving the Citizens Alliance from any involvement. And then when he refused, the sheriff basically told him, you're on your own now. I can't do anything to help you. I gave you your warning. <sighs> that evening, Moyer was attacked. Oh. He was shot in the back, he was beaten, and he was threatened to be thrown from a bridge in that area. They then put him on a train to Chicago, telling him never to come back. Well, if that isn't suspicious in itself. I'm sure they're innocent. Nothing to see here. I'm sure they're completely innocent. Crazy. So, court investigation goes into the tragedy. Nothing is ever conclusive. This baffles me. Yeah. There's no conclusion. Mm-hmm. They said that it was such a disaster because they had to have so many different interpreters. And so it just kind of spun into a circle. Kelly Matt wasn't prepared for this type of tragedy. They didn't have a morgue big enough for all the bodies. <sighs> the bodies were out laying in the streets. God. They needed, you know, over 60 children's caskets. caskets. Yeah. So those were being shipped in from other areas. And in between all that, kind of the smoke and mirrors, the actual investigation into the tragedy, and then without Moyer's involvement, Mm -hmm. that was it. That's so sad and heartbreaking and awful. It's really sad. So most of the, there was a mass funeral Mm. on December 28th with over 20,000 attendees. But they, a lot of people came to help. I mean, could you imagine 60 little children's bodies? I don't, it takes my breath away. Yeah. Um, I'm not trying, like, trying not to cry. So all the children, all the churches got involved. Um, your religious denomination didn't matter at this point. They were buried separately. So from what I read, there was two different um, cemeteries, a, a Christian and Protestant, and then a couple were exclusive buried in private mm-hmm. areas, but it sounded like it was about half and half. So supposedly also the the Miners Management and the Citizens Alliance, they raised money to help mm-hmm. aid the miners in this tragedy, but none of it was ever seen. Yeah. That's I, awful. And also, so Moyer, the guy who's supposed to, like, you know, he's in charge of the WFM, he had a little bit of a checkered past as well. So there was rumors. I mean, I kind of went on to, on this. You guys could have got a history lesson for days. Days. He had a checkered past as well. And 
there are there was rumors that he was benefiting off the strike and this and that. It was like politics in the 1913. Mm-hmm. I could not even. It was I was baffled. Like I said, I went down this rabbit hole. You guys got so much information. <laughs> But I appreciate the history because I didn't know all of that. I didn't know why this, like, I why didn't know the happened. culmination of what happened before the disaster and what, and I didn't know, I knew a little bit about the fact that it never really had a resolution, but I just, there's so many things that you told me that I just didn't know. Yeah. These people were in a bad situation. Yeah, it was no. terrible. So the strike it didn't end officially until the spring of 1914, but after this disaster, not a whole lot happened. Mm-hmm. No one really did anything. The automotive industry had picked up, and Henry Ford had been offering $5 a day to work on his automotive line. So most most strikers left for Detroit. Yeah. A little bit. It could have been a little bit less money, uh, but they were safer. Yeah. At that time... Uh, the WFM, they ran out of money. So those that didn't leave for Detroit, they ended up going back to work. They did have a shorter work days. They they got their eight-hour work days and a tiny uh, pay increase. It's such an unnecessary tragedy, but one of the good stories that we need to hear that our people, you know, it just what happens when you try to stand up for yourself. And they wanted something better. Mm-hmm. and Yeah, well, I mean, throughout history, we've seen this again and again and again when people are trying to stand up for their rights, continuing today. Yeah, it's... that's why I'm like, wow, we've come so far, but not that much. No, we've come far, but at the same time, there's still those in power that keep pushing down the little guy and don't want them to get a leg up. No. And that's... Um. So the Italian hall no longer stands today, with the exception of its archway. So they did leave the archway. Oh, it's kind of like a commemorative. Yeah. yeah. So you can visit it in Calumet. There's also a monument there with all uh, names of the 73 victims. And then every anniversary, they do 73 luminaries that are placed on the walkway oh. of the path. And they still do this? They still do this up to That's the path. amazing. To the archway. It's really pretty. There's pictures of it, and they do it every anniversary. I want to see those pictures. Yeah, the happy happy pictures. And then I'll post pictures of the, there's the monument of the names, and then there's also something that they say in remembrance. So I think it's pretty cool that that long ago and the city chose to keep that archway to Mm -hmm. remember that tragedy and still honor those people. I agree. So if you want to add that to your visit when you go to Calumet, you can see it. And now you know the history behind it. You don't need a tour guide. You had Jen in your ear. And that concludes (laughs) your lesson on Michigan's Copper Country. There you go. 1913. Good job. That was a good story. Just in the the fact that, like I said, I just didn't know. I didn't know all the, all the its and bits, as you always say, you know? It was, um, mm-hmm. like I said, it's, it's very different than what I would normally do. So hopefully people can appreciate it. But once I started reading about it, I couldn't stop. And Yeah. Well, you know what? Hey, we said we don't know what road this podcast is going to take us on or what we might discuss. Like, you guys might get some really interesting stuff, like a history lesson or um, a conspiracy theory or <laughs> who knows. Yeah. But if we come across it and we can't stop reading about it, 
we only have limited time in our week to figure out a story. So that's what you're going to get. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I like this one. You did a good job. So on Christmas Eve, think about these yes. people. Take a pause. Yes. These people who lost their lives for better working conditions. And, and maybe tell your kids about the, you know, just the gist of these people had nothing and this this community tried to come together and give these children what they could and it wasn't much. And so, damn it, kids, be grateful that you, you know, for the things that you have today and be, you know, just right. We're, we're constantly trying to find ways to get our kids to help others and, and do things in their community. And I, don't get me wrong. My kids love doing all of that, but there's just times, you know, when you question, you're like, do they get it? Oh yeah. Do they understand? I, my, I want my children to be satisfied with what they have and want more, but not feel like that's going to bring them happiness. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes any sense whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with society's desire to think that more material, material items are going that equal success or bring you joy when those are great. But if you could just be happy with what you have. That's the key. I, you know. That's the key. I'm not sure if I make any sense it, whatsoever. No, you but absolutely do. I try to tell my kids all the time. I'm like, that's great. You want other things. Like, you got to work for it, but you don't need it right away and think about it. And even. even if you work for it and you earn it and you can afford that for yourself, that's fantastic. But once you get it, your life hasn't changed. Nothing's changed. Nothing has changed. Mm-hmm. And that's what they need to, that's what they need to realize. Absolutely. 100%. So, on that note. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas uh, to all of you out there. Merry Christmas. Be merry on all of your Zoom meetings and hopefully with your quarantine people. Eat some good food and enjoy some cozy time. Hopefully you get snow in the areas that people get snow and want snow. I like snow for Christmas. Mm, If you don't want it, I hope you don't get it. I want the snow. I just want it for Christmas and then I want it to kind of like maybe stay for a little while so I can sled. I don't mind a mid-January snow. But by Easter, come on. (laughs) It's getting ridiculous. Welcome to the Midwest. Yes. Yes. Well, hey, what last, was it last year or the year before we were trick-or-treating in the snow, snow on the ground, with our yeah. hot spiced wine and yeah. freezing our butts well, off. Well, we had snow on Easter, too. And on Easter. Was that last year or the year before? One just never years. stopped snowing. <laughs> and then, you know, you get like an infernal winter where you just, it's, you know, hey, it's Christmas and it's 73 degrees. So you weird. just never know. You don't. You don't. So. so wherever you are, we hope you get the weather that you uh, desire. And we will check in with you after after Christmas. We sure will. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.